0: Our New Testament reading is on page 886, it's John chapter 1, you can turn there. And as we read this text, I want us to be reminded a little bit of uh, kind of what I just shared with the kids. As we think about Jesus, as we think about his humanity and about his deity, as we think about where Jesus comes from, uh, this text speaks very clearly to that. Into those distinctions. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men I love this passage begins the gospel of John and introduces us to our Lord and talks about how he came into this world. He came to his own people. He came as a descendant of Abraham, yet his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. But it says to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name by faith, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are children of God if we trust in Christ. And that is good news for us this morning. Well, now you can turn back to Genesis, uh, chapter 38, where we will be continuing our sermon series in Genesis. And that is on page 32, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles. The title of the message this morning is, You Come From Those People... You'll be probably seeing some of the themes that we just talked about with the kids, a little bit of the themes we just talked about there in John 1, Genesis 38. So we have these questions, right? Where am I from? How did I get here, right? How did I come to this place that I I live in? Who are my people, right? And what is our story? These are not new questions. Uh, these are questions that people have asked for all of human history, and uh, I think they're today probably being asked a little bit more with things like Ancestry.com uh, and DNA testing, right? We, we're really kind of into this, wanting to know where we come from. Uh, some of us maybe grew up in families where that was a very common thing, like you got the family tree on the wall and all those different things. Other people are like, I have no idea about my ancestry, so there's kind of this, this interest and these things are really kind of front burner issues today. Uh, you may have seen the Ancestry.com, ancestry.com uh, commercial where the lady is talking about, she put in the information and then she found out she was related to George Washington. And then at the end, she's standing there with a big picture and she says, this is my cousin George. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting, kind of funny. You, you may not be related to George Washington, but you do have a story, right? There is a story of where you came from. And maybe... This week, uh, if you were back with your family, if you were celebrating Thanksgiving with your family, or if you're planning to travel for Christmas to be with family, these questions of origin have been front burner issues for you. Maybe it exposed some very intense feelings for you this week. Uh, Maybe it was feelings of thankfulness. Maybe you got together with your family, and you said, I'm so thankful to be related to these people. I'm so thankful to have the heritage that we have. And if that's true, praise God for that. Uh, That's what we hope for, right? That's what we long for in many of our lives. But for some of us, there may have been opposite reactions, right? There may be bitterness. There may be I can't believe I come from these people, right? I can't believe I'm related to these people and thankfully I only have to see them once a year or something like that, right? That may be kind of your experience this time of year. Some of you, you want to take that family tree picture and you want to hang it proudly on the wall and when people come over, you want to point to it and, and tell everybody about your family. Others, you want to take that picture out back and dig a hole and bury it and, and never look at it again, Right? Ancestry, our flesh and blood relatives, may be something that we wish we could change. And it may be the source of much pain and embarrassment for us. But we also have a spiritual ancestry, right? We have a spiritual ancestry to talk about. And we are in a predicament there as well. We are all born sinners. We're all born descendants of Adam and Eve spiritually. And we come into this world with a problem That we can't solve. We may have messed up earthly families and have difficult barriers to overcome, but the spiritual ancestry presents us with an even greater problem. So, the question that we ask in light of that is what hope is there for us? What hope is there in light of the spiritual ancestry that we come into this world with? And then how does the book of Genesis and this story of this majorly dysfunctional family that we've been looking at, how does it relate to us today? What hope is there for us? We can ask as we look at this, what hope was there for them? We've been in the book of Genesis, if you're just joining us, we've been following the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob last week. uh, We started chapter 37 and it said these are the generations of Jacob when it was introduced the chapter and really the next from chapter 37 to chapter 50 it's going to be a story of Jacob's sons mainly focused on Joseph who we saw last week. Joseph had some dreams from the Lord. He went and told them to his brothers. They didn't like it too much. They wanted to kill him. Uh, they decided not to kill him but to throw him in a pit and then they eventually sold him into slavery. Chapter 37 kind of ends with this cliffhanger that the brothers go back to the father Jacob thinks Joseph is dead, Jacob ends, or Joseph ends up down in Egypt and we kind of are left hanging. And today we come to a different story uh, that is kind of a, seems like an odd break. Like why would this story be inserted here? Because it's not about Joseph directly, it's not about him going down to Egypt. And we might ask based on the contents of this story like we did a few weeks ago with chapter 34 and The story of Dinah. Why is this story in our Bibles, right? Why did God choose to give us this story? Again, if you open up any children's Bible, I was just looking at one of our children's Bibles this morning, not in there, right? They're not going to cover this chapter. There's some messed up stuff here, right? Some bad things that are going to be happening, but this is here for a reason, and we should ask, what does God want his people to learn from this story? What should we take to heart here after looking at this? Well, let's find out. Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Till Shelah, my son, grows up, "'for he feared that he would die like his brothers. "'So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. "'In the course of time, the wife of Judah, "'Shua's daughter, died. "'When Judah was comforted, "'he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, "'he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. "'And when Tamar was told, "'Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah "'to shear his sheep, "'she took off her widow's garments "'and covered herself with a veil.' Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she did not, had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. "'since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, "'and he did not know her again. "'When the time of her labor came, "'there were twins in her womb. "'And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, "'and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, "'saying, this one came out first. "'But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. "'And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. "'Therefore his name was called Perez.' Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning. Not just because this is a difficult story, not just because it might be difficult to read, but because we see ourselves in this story. We see ourselves in the brokenness. We see ourselves in the the family pain, the deception. And God, we need your grace. We need your comforting. We need healing from your hand. So God, I ask that your word would speak clearly and powerfully to your people this morning. That we would be changed, that we would be renewed, that we would grow closer to you, and that you would remind us of who we are because of you and because of you, what you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our story here begins with both the spiritual and the moral failures of Judah and his sons. First thing we see is that Judah leaves home and he goes to live among the Canaanites. We've seen that this is a bad move, right? We've seen this over and over throughout the history of Abraham and his descendants. Then he goes and marries a daughter, of Yeshua the Canaanite. And again, we've talked about intermarriage, that the reason why God condemns intermarriage is that people are being joined with others who are not worshipers of the Lord and that they're being drawn away. They're being led astray into idolatry. And we're going to continue to see, if you continue to read the Old Testament, after Genesis, you're going to continue to see this story of God's people being led astray. See it in Solomon. We see it in all of these kings of Israel who are led astray. So Judah and his wife have three children. The oldest child, his name is Ur, And Judah takes a wife for his son Ur, and her name is Tamar. Something interesting about Ur, uh, his name in Hebrew is just two consonants. If you take those two consonants and you flip them around, it's the word for evil or wickedness. And it's the word that we talked about last week um, that we've seen throughout Genesis. God looking at evil and and the wickedness of people. And then we're presented with a prophet. Here in this passage, that we've seen in the past three generations, and this is the problem of childlessness. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all faced the same challenge, and God always intervened. God always heard their prayers. He came and He delivered them and He gave them a child, He opened up the wombs. And God's intervention throughout these stories, it always overcame the human attempts. To do things on their own strength and in their own power. And we're going to see that again here in this story. The problem is exacerbated here because the man who's supposed to carry on the line is a wicked man. We don't know exactly why and what he does, but God takes him out. God kills him. So now what? Here's the oldest son of Judah. Here's this wife who's now a widow Where are the children going to come from? Where is the next generation going to come from? Judah gives his next son Onan, tells him to go to raise up offspring for his brother. This is called Leverite or Leverite marriage. It was practiced across the ancient Near East that when a brother died, uh, the next brother in line would raise up children for his deceased brother. And this would actually. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 25, this would actually be put into the law of the people of Israel, that this Leverite marriage would be something that they were to do. But Onan disobeys the Lord. He does not fulfill the command that Judah, his father, gave him, and therefore he disobeys the Lord, and God puts him to death. So now we're left with one son, Shelah, but Judah's like isn't looking good. Like two of my sons are already dead. I don't know if he thought Tamar was cursed or what was going on, but he doesn't want his last son to die. So he sends Tamar away to her father's house. He thinks maybe I can take care of this right in my own way. And he says when Sheila gets older, then I will give him to you. Okay, we'll we'll take care of this when he's grown up. We see As we've seen in these generations, we see Judah's failure as a father here. He doesn't bring up his sons in the knowledge of the Lord, in the knowledge of the covenant promises, in the knowledge that the offspring of Abraham and their descendants were to be a blessing to the world. I think if Onan would have understood that, right, he would have followed through and he would have obeyed the Lord, understanding that this was part of God's plan and part of God's blessing to the world. Instead, he disobeys. And Judah doesn't react in faith. He reacts in fear. He reacts in self-preservation. Learned a little bit of that from his own father. And this way of acting, this acting out of fear and self-preservation, it hasn't worked well so far for the patriarchs, right? We've seen this play out. And now, apparently, Judah wants to have his try at it, right? He's going to have a go, but he's going to totally get busted here. Tamar, she gets in on deception, right? Again, she's learned well from this family. Tamar, she schemes and disguises herself as a prostitute. She meets Judah on the alongside the road, and he takes the bait, right? He thinks she's a prostitute. He goes and asks her to be with her, but she says, "Not so, not so fast. I need a payment." Right? He says, "Well, I'll send you a goat." Gu- But I don't have a goat with me, so she asks for a pledge, and he gives these items. It's basically like handing over your phone and your car keys and your credit cards, saying, here you go, until I give the thing that I promised to give, here is my pledge. And he agrees to it, and he's deceived. And they're talking, right? You're thinking, how does he not know who she is, right? I don't know what's going on here, but he gets deceived by her, Later on, he sends the goat, right? He sends it along with his friend to, to, to give the payment and to get his stuff back. And the men of the place are like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's There hasn't been any cult prostitute here. And he comes back, his friend comes back with the goat, and Judah's like, Okay, forget about it. Who cares about my stuff? I don't want to lose face among these people. We're just going to sweep this under the rug and just move on, right? Well, for Judah, this is another embarrassing episode. He's trying to cut. Trying to forget about it. Just like he and his brothers in our previous chapter tried to cover up the murder of their brother Joseph, right? Well, let's just forget about it. Let's let's move on with our lives, right? Pretend this never happened. Don't miss the connection there. Okay. But Judah, God sees you, right? We talked about this the patriarchs, especially Jacob, right? God sees you. This has been a theme throughout the book of Genesis. Adam, where are you? Cain, where is your brother? The flood of God looked down and he saw the wickedness in the earth, right? God sees. The time of people, it's almost kind of comical, God came down right, to see the tower. It was so puny that God had to come down so that he could see it. And then Jacob, Judah's father, he spent so much of his life running from God when God was there and God had promised to be with him all the time. Judah, again, is acting as if God doesn't see. I love 94. It really captures this dynamic well. Is crying out to God in verse 3 he says, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? How long will the wicked people continue in their pride, right? And then it goes on a little later in that psalm, it says, the wicked say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dust of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not Hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Brothers and sisters, there is a warning and an encouragement here. The warning is that God doesn't see, right? He sees our sin. He sees when we try Things up like Judah did. Now, in Judah's case, it was obvious all other people knew about it, right? But he's still trying to pretend like it never happened. He sees the things that we see that nobody else sees, right? The things in our hearts. He sees those things. But the encouragement is to not hide in your sin, right? To bring those things into the light so that they can be exposed knows your thoughts. God knows your weaknesses. And the encouragement is not to hide, but to run to Him. You can't run away from Him, right? He already knows. Run to Him. The rest of Psalm 94, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about how God gives us rest, how God doesn't forsake us, how He holds us up, how He is our stronghold. In other words, the message there is that God is for us. He is for us and not against us. Yet we sin like Judah and Tamar and like all of those before them, right? And all of those after them. We sin. But God doesn't abandon us in our sin. He didn't abandon Judah and Tamar in their sin. We said after chapter 34, right? The Bible should just end here, right? After what... The sons do and destroying the people same thing here right why, like why do they continue on with these people but he doesn't in fact the story continues here in, in verse 24 climax of the, in the climax of this story we see God at work in Judah's life begins with Judah learning that Tamar is pregnant by immorality And really the only way that Tamar could have been pregnant, not by immorality, would have been if she would have had a child with Sheila. But Judah did not give Sheila to her, so this is what happened. So Judah prevented that from happening. And then Judah calls for her death, right? Bring her out, let's let her be burned. And don't miss the irony here, right? Judah is just as guilty as she is. Judah should be burned at the stake right alongside of her. Later on, you see that in Levit- Leviticus chapter 20. If a man sleeps with his daughter, grandma, they are to be put to death. Okay? So Judah is just as guilty here. Then, as he's being brought, she sends the pledge back to him. Right? She sends his things back and says, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And it's hard to hear in these words the echo of Nathan's words to King David after his sin with Bathsheba when he murdered her husband and then took her to be his wife. Nathan the prophet told David a story of a rich man who took the, uh, the goat of a, or the lamb of a poor man that he loved, he took it and he, he killed it and prepared a meal for his visitors that were coming. You remember the story, and David is enraged. David says, As the Lord, surely man shall be put to death. You remember what Nathan says to David? You are the man. You are guilty, right? You are the man. And then David in Psalm 51, he repents, he turns to God. Ten generations passed. From Judah to David. But this generational sin did not go away. Neither did their need for repentance. Judah is just as guilty. He has as much need to turn to God. When he identifies his items, he's busted and it's clear that he is the man, and what does he say in verse 26? She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Sheila. Two things here in this, in this confession. The first that this is, I, I believe, a true confession of guilt on Judah's part. And we're gonna see God change his life over the course of the next couple decades. And this confession that Tamar is more righteous than Judah. It doesn't mean that she is without sin. It doesn't mean she's she's perfect. It doesn't mean that she did the right thing. But it means that what she did was more right than him. Okay? She pointed out his, his sin. She pointed out his fault in not doing what God had called him to do. Judah had sinned against her by withholding Sheila and then by sleeping with her. And she... He is saying that she is more righteous than him. Well, to this point, you still be thinking, okay, why is this story here in the Bible, right? Why do we have this in our scriptures? But I think it actually fits in quite well with the Joseph narrative. Joseph was sinned against by his brothers. He was sold into slavery And at the climax of the Joseph story, it says in chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that's really how this chapter ends and how this chapter points us forward. Judah and Tamar did something that was evil, right? They did something. They were both guilty. But God used it, God meant it for good. Through all this family drama... The problem of childlessness is overcome, and the offspring through whom the world will be blessed is born. We see here in the end of the chapter that these twins are born, Perez and Zerah, and then we, we know from later on that the line is going to continue through Perez. Now, you might sit here and read this today and be like, "Okay, this is really obscure. Just all these weird Hebrew names and all these, you know, these distant people." this have to do with our contemporary lives? Let's not miss the significance of this chapter here. Perez, now his name is only going to be mentioned a few more times in the Old Testament, and it's always going to be in some relationship to a genealogy. One of the most mentions of Perez's name is at the end of the book of Ruth. Now Ruth, like Tamar, she was a Gentile woman who had been married to a descendant of Judah's. Her husband also died, and Ruth was childless. But she trusted God. She returned back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law Naomi, and she married a man named Boaz. Boaz performed the duties in the levirate marriage. He performed his responsibilities, unlike Judah's sons, right? Boaz performed those duties and he marries Ruth. And at the end of Ruth, after they agree, Boaz and Ruth agreed to get married, they're at the city gates. The elders gather at the gate of the city. And this is how the elders of the city respond to Boaz's agreement to marry Ruth. They say that they are witnesses and they ask for a blessing upon her like Rachel and Leah. And then they say, and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The offspring that God gave Boaz and Ruth was named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of David listing ten generations and guess who the genealogy starts with? Starts with Perez, okay? Now, why on earth would this genealogy in Ruth, Ruth chapter four, the very end of Ruth chapter four, these 10 generations, why would it start with Perez? Why wouldn't they go all the way back to Abraham? It wasn't that much farther. Why start with Perez? Which brings us back to our question, what hope was there for them? And what hope is there for us? When we come to the New Testament, if you open up right to the beginning of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, we get a genealogy right off the bat, right? And I know we like to joke around like, oh, just reading all these names, it's so boring. But we've, if you have been with us as we've been going through Genesis, especially earlier on in the spring when we were in the beginning, Genesis kind of set up, these are the generations of, and then Fill in the blank, and that, that's repeated over and over, and that's kind of how Genesis is structured. Well, the New Testament begins, the very first line in the New Testament is, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, okay? And that language, these are the generations of, and the book of the genealogy of are the exact same words that are being used. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus was not only the promised seed of Abraham, his far off, as his far off son, he was the promised son of David, the son who David would told, was told would sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. But then his genealogy gets pretty interesting, and it gets a little dicey. In the Bible, genealogies almost never include the names of women whole Bible. I think there might be one other genealogy that has a, has a woman named in it. But the man who is claiming to be the savior of the world has four here listed in his genealogy. Tamar, Re, the prostitute who was actually Boaz's mother, Ruth, and Bathsheba, David's wife. Okay? Three out of four sexually more women who needed a savior For, for sinful human beings, sinful women who needed a savior. You may, you know, sat with your family at your Thanksgiving meal and said, you know, I don't know how you can use me when I come from such messed up people, right? me to my family I don't know how God can use me to be a witness when I go home and I just feel like I don't even want to be here or you may be here today you may think I don't know how God can use me for good in this world when he knows what I've done, right when he knows what a mess I've made of my life or when he knows that secret sin that I'm dealing with I don't know how God can use me He's seen it all, right? Nothing surprises him. And we look at the story of these people, and we're like, How do you know, what? It didn't stop God choosing and using sinful, broken people like Judah and Tamar, and Rahab and Bathsheba and David. But we stand here today on this side of the cross. And we rejoice in what God has done to save sinners like us, in the midst of right, in the midst of our family dysfunction, the fact that God still chooses to love us, still chooses to use us for His purposes, is an amazing picture of His grace in our lives. What He has done to rescue us out of the pit, He has adopted us. He has brought into his family and made us his children and it is all by his grace and as we talked about with the kids as we've been mentioning as we saw in in john chapter one we have a new spiritual heritage says in john one to all who did receive him jesus who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God, children of God, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in who God has made us to be in Christ and what he has done to bring us to himself. Let's pray. God, are reminded in this text that you broken people and you use sinful human beings to accomplish your purposes God may we be reminded of the grace that you have poured out in Christ that as we come to him as we become your children through Christ God may we may we be reminded of your love for us of your care of your fatherly care May we be able to run to you with all the junk in our lives. May we be able to rest in you. And may we be able to to go out knowing that it's not in our strength that we, we try to love other people. It's not in our strength that we try to point others to you. But it is your spirit at work in us. So God, would you be pleased to use us.